From Sage Magazine, this is Habitations. I'm Noah Sokol. My guest, Antonio Juhas, is an investigative journalist and author who has been covering the oil industry for many years. A major focus of her work has been on the genesis and the influence of big oil, a term used to describe the world's largest publicly owned oil and gas companies, like Chevron and ExxonMobil. Because of this work, she has been closely following Rex Tillerson for many years, who is formerly the CEO of ExxonMobil and now the United States Secretary of State. We discuss Tillerson's aims and his influence in the Trump administration, as well as the long history of relationship between the oil industry and the U.S. government, extending back a century and a half. In her reporting, Antonia has also covered the resistance to big oil, including a recent series of articles on the protests at Standing Rock against the Dakota Access Pipeline. Antonia Juhas's work has appeared in publications like Rolling Stone, Harper's Magazine, Newsweek, and The Atlantic, among many others. She is also the author of three books, including The Bush Agenda, The Tyranny of Oil, and most recently, Black Tide, The Devastating Impact of the Gulf Oil Spill. I spoke with Antonia in early November. Antonia Juhas, welcome to Habitations. Thank you for having me. Good morning. You've been reporting now for many years on the oil industry, especially the big oil companies and their relationship with the U.S. government. And that's both parties in the U.S. government, the Democrats and the Republicans. So considering how long this relationship between the oil industry and the government has been going on for, how does the current administration, the Trump administration, stack up in terms of how it is tied to the oil industry in relation to past administrations. I wrote a book called The Bush Agenda that was about the Bush administration's relationship to the oil industry. And just to the sort of simplest line is there's only one other United States president that's actually come out of the oil industry uh, other than George W. Bush, and that was his father, George Bush Sr. So we thought that the relationships between the George W. Bush administration and the oil industry were pretty much the pinnacle that we were that we had would see in the U.S. Um, and had certainly reached, I think, the greatest height since Warren Harding, so in the history of the United States. Um, the Trump administration has surpassed it. It's a it's a it's a slightly difficult a different relationship, but in terms of people within the administration and backers of the administration who are either directly from the oil industry, including the the height, the pinnacle of the oil industry with Rex Tillerson at Secretary of State, or have spent most of their careers basically working hand in hand with the industry like Scott Pruitt. Um, I think that this administration is even far more tied to fossil fuels. Uh, than than George W. Bush. And I don't think that they would disagree with me (laughs) on that. Um, I think that it's a priority of this administration, and it is part and parcel to the financing and the composition of this administration. So let's talk about perhaps the most salient link of the current administration to the oil industry, which, as you mentioned, is Rex Tillerson, who spent 41 years, his entire career before he was Secretary of State at Exxon, uh, of which he was CEO for the last 10 of those years. Is that is that correct? Mm-hmm. You wrote an article last January before he was confirmed um, as Secretary of State, uh, and the title of that article was Why Rex Tillerson Could Be America's Most Dangerous Secretary of State. So can you just first start by describing what you were concerned about last January about Rex Tillerson being the United States Secretary of State? Yeah, I so after my book The Bush Agenda, which writing about the Bush administration, a lot of it was also talking about the oil industry and the role of oil industry in um federal policy and international policy. The next book I wrote was called The Tyranny of Oil, and it was looking at the power of major oil companies and also providing a historical reference going back in time and looking at the the basically the history of oil development in the United States and the history of oil political power in the United States to frame the moment that we were in at that point, which was 2008. And that means that I've spent a lot of time studying Rex Tillerson and ExxonMobil um, because ExxonMobil is the, um, the, the current entity of Standard Oil. It's the two largest post-breakup pieces of Standard Oil, which became Exxon and Mobil, and then Exxon and Mobil were allowed to merge in 2000. And 
the power of Standard Oil as it developed, emerged out of the um, birth of the oil industry in the 1860s and the history of how John D. Rockefeller turned that company into the most powerful company in the world and himself into one of the most powerful um, political figures in the world is a um, story of monopoly, manipulation, uh, lots of illegality, um, so much illegality and abuse, in fact, that ultimately the U.S. Supreme Court decided that Standard Oil should no longer exist as a company and broke it up into 34 separate corporate parts. One of the reasons for the breakup was not only the illegality of the of the company and the harm that it caused, but was also the idea that was coming to the fore, particularly coming out of um, the power that had been granted to U.S. companies in the wake of the Civil War and as they grew into dominating monopolies, was this idea that a democracy does not function well if companies are bigger than the government. And that was an idea that was building at that time. It was part of what was called the progressive movement, also the populist movement, a term that is quite abused today, Um, and really trying to come up with this idea of how, how a democracy can best function in the United States. And the idea that the government needed to be able to control companies Uh, to have the democracy function well was very central to that. And laws were developed around that. And one of the reasons why the laws were developed was directly in response to Standard Oil. And so the the idea that was held very firmly for many lawmakers for many years was that um, the oil industry in particular needed to have a separation from the government um, because we are an incredibly oil-rich nation. We also have made... um, fundamental international decisions in guarding, impacting the fate of nations around the world um, and people and places and environments and climates around oil. And that the separation needed to at least be somewhat, um, at a minimum, symbolic. (laughs) So Dick Cheney was vice president of the United States, and he had been CEO of Halliburton, uh, largest energy service company at the time, but he had also spent most of his life as a public figure. He had mostly been in public office. Then he went to head an oil company. Then he went back to public service. Rex Tillerson represents the most powerful, one of the most powerful oil men ever after John D. Rockefeller, heading the most powerful oil company in the world, or had been at least some people are not sure it is right now. And then he was put as Secretary of State, a position where foreign policy is developed. But on a, a sort of more more profound level, it is that that disintegrating of the idea of the need to separate oil and state, <laughs> the oil from the federal government in the, of the United States. So now it's been just over nine months since he was um, confirmed as Secretary of State. Considering that, uh, has he been the most dangerous Secretary of State thus far that the United States has had? Um, th- you know, if I if I could knock on wood and not disturb our interview, I would do that. So far, no, thank goodness. Because <laughs> um, the things that I'm most worried about are the things that I'm worried are in are in the works with Tillerson. So there's a couple things that Tillerson's role uh, is meant to fulfill. One is, in my perspective, he's really the Bush administration's man in the Trump White House. So he's very much part and parcel with George W. Bush and all of the members of his administration. Those were the people that pitched Tillerson to Trump. Uh, Condoleezza Rice, Gates. I've, we he- I've heard that George W. Bush actually himself contacted Corker. Um, and Tillerson is intimately tied to clearly not only that administration, but Texas oil. Uh, Texas oil money as well. Tillerson did not back Trump. ExxonMobil did not back Trump. But once Trump was elected, Tillerson, I think, was that the representation of all of those interests within the Trump administration. And one thing that was very, very clear and well articulated within the Bush administration at the end of the Bush administration was that after Iraq, Iran was the next target, the next military target. And that has a lot to do, although not exclusively to do with oil. ExxonMobil played a key role in ensuring that the Iraq war would secure oil for itself, which it did. And one of my biggest concerns is that Iran is the next target 
of the U.S. government. And that also happens to align very clearly with just about the only thing that Trump's foreign policy team agrees on is that it does not like Iran. And there's very little else that it agrees on. Oh, and that it doesn't like Islam. That Those are two things that the foreign policy team agrees on. With Tillerson leading the charge, that oil pool is a great big target for of getting Iran's oil, just like Iraq was as well. So I'm very concerned about a war with Iran. And those the path towards that is, is certainly not being avoided with this administration, let's put it that way. And Tillerson is a part of this administration. And I believe we're actually moving in a very confrontational way, clearly, with Iran. The other great concern I have with Tillerson is Russia. And I believe that his primary objective in becoming Secretary of State on a personal level was to eliminate the sanctions put in place against uh, Russia by the Obama administration to allow Exxon to take advantage of its massive oil holdings in Russia, which are five times larger than its holdings anywhere else, which is the United States, which were denied to it as a result of the Obama administration. Why would that be his primary goal if he's no longer at Exxon? If I understand correctly, he had to sell off all of his Exxon shares or put them in, in a trust? Not sell off, put off for 10 years. Put off for 10 years. Um, so what would be his main interest in the success of Exxon uh, now? Men like Tillerson, who have spent their entire lives, and there's many of them at the companies, not their entire lives, their entire professional lives, at the oil companies, which they came to the helm, helm of. And that's very standard in the oil industry is people, uh, it's the first job they take out, out of college. They stay at the same company their entire professional life. It's very common. Tillerson is obviously part of that generation and got to the pinnacle of it. And it is part and parcel to who they are. When Tillerson left Exxon, he left it in the worst condition it had been in in at least a decade. He is now in a position to fix a problem that he oversaw happening. He spent 10 years negotiating the agreements with Russia that led to Exxon getting this massive pool of oil. There are very few pools of oil left in the world. This was a big one, Russia's oil, particularly in the Arctic. He spent 10 years negotiating those deals. He got it. As soon as he got it, President Obama said, you can't have it. He had to retire from Exxon. They have a forced retirement at age 65, so he didn't have a choice to stay at Exxon. But then he had another choice, which was to become Secretary of State. In October, the New Yorker staff writer Dexter Filkins uh, wrote a piece entitled uh, Rex Tillerson at the Breaking Point, where he discussed some of the underlying tensions between Donald Trump and Rex Tillerson um, and the potential tenuousness of his tenure uh, in the Trump administration. What do you uh, foresee for how long uh, Tillerson will stay in this administration, and will he achieve what he is uh, setting out uh, to achieve? I don't think Rex Tillerson and Donald Trump ever liked each other. I certainly know that Rex Tillerson never backed Donald Trump. Um, the the Exxon and Tillerson backed um, uh, Jeb Bush as did the entire oil industry, and they fully assumed that he was going to be the candidate. They all misjudged the, the, well, they misjudged a lot of things about the election. That was one of them. They then put their money behind taking Congress, which they did. And between the two candidates, the majority of oil money went to Clinton, but not in any sort of sizable fashion. I think Clinton was, for them, a known quantity. And if they could control Congress, then they felt, you know, we'll, we'll go with Clinton. Once it became clear that it was going to be Trump, though, there needed to be people within the Trump administration who represented uh, a semblance of continuity with the establishment Republicans, particularly the Bush administration Republicans. So that's Tillerson. That's why he goes in. He doesn't go in because he likes Donald Trump. He doesn't go in because he's part and parcel to Trumpism. He also goes in with his own agenda. So my thinking is... Tillerson will stay in as long as it serves Tillerson's interests. If Trump becomes more of a burden than a potential benefit, if being tied to the administration it ultimately ends up looking like it will harm his long-term interests and those long-term interests of the Bush folks, then he would go. If he feels that he has an advantage to staying in, then he'll stay. I believe that Rex Tillerson is a far more powerful individual than Donald Trump. 
will ever be. I don't think Donald Trump gets to say what happens to Rex Tillerson. Now, Donald Trump is also someone who, if you tell him he can't do something, it exactly makes him do it. So if Donald Trump is listening to this podcast, I'm terrified that that's going to motivate him to do something. Or maybe I'm not terrified. If he tries to get rid of Rex Tillerson as Secretary of State, maybe that's not a problem. But it's certainly one thing we know about Donald Trump is that anytime someone says don't do something, that is the most exciting thing for him to do it. So I, I take back all of what I just said about being terrified. Donald Trump, you can't get rid of Rex Tillerson. He's way more powerful than you are. <laughs> if Donald Trump did get rid of Rex Tillerson, would that in any substantial way affect the relationship between the oil industry and this current administration? So so there are, at this point, multiple oil industries. So there is a domestic industry that has a certain set of domestic interests. There are the what I call the Gordon geckos that are quite dominant within and outside of the Trump administration, but are the people who make money um, stripping oil companies down to their bare bones when they're in default and bankruptcy, which is a lot of the domestic oil industry, and then flipping them and then making money off of that. So just like Gordon Gecko from Wall Street with airline companies. Um, there is the international oil industry. There isn't necessarily agreement on policy between those strands of the industry, all of which run through the Trump administration. So someone like Harold Hamm, the leading um, policy setter for Trump's domestic oil interests and a financial backer for Trump and the person who linked Trump to basically the oil patch, the places like the Bakken in North Dakota. Ham doesn't necessarily have the same interests as Rex Tillerson. Their companies are dramatically different with different interests. The domestic oil industry, which is having enormous success within the Trump administration at seeing um, a rampant, vast elimination of enforcement, regulatory enforcement, regulations, um, is already seeing its goals well achieved through the Trump administration. On an international level, it's a slower story. So if Tillerson was out and someone not like him came in, I think I think you would see an Trump administration foreign policy that it is probably more um, more focused on being anti-Islam as a more sort of unifying figure feature, as opposed to the more sort of geopolitical aspect that is brought in by a Tillerson. Exxon is currently facing several major lawsuits right now, including a lawsuit by the state attorney generals of. Uh, Massachusetts and New York about the possibility that Exxon misled uh, the public and investors uh, about the risks of climate change from research that it did uh, in the 1970s. So can you just, for those not familiar with this, describe this research they did? But I'm curious what you think, uh, if, if you think the outcome of those lawsuits could at all affect uh, the public perception of, of Tillerson. So... um this is based on, on information that's been out for a while that actually originally was exposed, um, gosh, I think it was by Mother Jones in the 80s, if I'm not mistaken. I wrote about it in Tyranny of Oil. Then um, Inside Climate News and the Los Angeles Times did an incredible intensive expose, really digging into a trove of documents that exposed, that fully exposed, that in the 1970s, Exxon had hired a team of scientists to study the impacts of burning fossil fuels on the climate because they were worried about the impacts of their operations and needed to know what the impact would be on where they operate. And they uh, very clearly uncovered in the 70s through their science that burning fossil fuels damages the climate. In fact, there was an intern, which is sort of my favorite, also the most disturbing part of it, an intern there who in the 70s came up with a number that 30 years later, it took 30 years for us to come back to this number, that 80% of fossil fuels would need to stay in the ground if the worst impacts of climate damage were to be averted. So instead of sharing that information with the public, Exxon hid that information from the public and its shareholders. 
and instead became one of the major financiers of the climate denialist movement, supporting think tanks, researchers who would purport that there is no such thing as climate change, with the goal being to create uncertainty in the public's mind. And if the public was uncertain about the effects of burning fossil fuels on climate change, then the public would wait for the people who had certainty. Now, if you remember that language to what I said about Tillerson's perspective on climate change, the words that he uses, uncertainty, we don't know. He's trying to continue the idea of doubt, which is exactly what Exxon did from the 70s to the 80s to the 90s to the 2000s to 2010s, is it took us this long to get back to a place where people understand the certainty of climate science, which Exxon was well aware of at the time. So the lawsuit says Exxon continued to do that and continues to this day to fund climate denialist organizations. Um, and that misled its shareholders about the value of the of the product because if um, – if burning fossil fuels destroys the climate and creates economic harm and leads to policies to restrict uh, access to fossil fuels, that is misleading the shareholders as to what the potential. So uh, companies have to make forward statements about predictions about how they think policy is going to impact the company and the value of their product. And Exxon was making misleading statements about the potential future value of its product. And that's the lawsuit. Uh, in New York. And there are investigations in several other states as well. If Exxon is found guilty, I don't know what the impact will be unless Tillerson is specifically named, and I'm not sure if he is uh, in those in the in the case. The public already really dislikes the oil industry. The question is really, are we able to have a government that's willing to put in place policies that shift us away from the industry and the public's belief and faith and commitment to doing that. So it's taking the step from acknowledging the problem to acknowledging that you have um, onus to solve it, whatever the AA language is. I don't know. Someone might know. Uh, But basically, it's moving to that next step. I'd like to talk a little bit about your 2008 book, uh, The Tyranny of Oil. And I believe you took that phrase from a speech uh, that then-Senator Barack Obama gave at the Iowa caucus, uh, which he won. What was he referring to and what sentiment uh, in the broader American population was he capturing when he used that phrase, the tyranny of oil? Yeah. Um, so that was 2008. Um, Senator Obama and candidate Obama had just been the first African-American to win the Iowa caucus. It was a time when oil prices were $150 a barrel. Um, the price of oil was uh, – the price of gasoline was also extremely high. The oil industry was ascendant riding on those profits. Um, and it was the a time within the Bush administration where many, 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 many policy choices were being made on behalf of the oil industry, and the public was certainly very uh, aware of that, upset by that, and in particular the relationship between the Iraq War and oil. And so the rest of that sentence in Obama's speech is, "I will be the first. I will be the president that eliminates uh, the tyranny of oil and." ends the war in Iraq. That was the full sentence, to great applause. Um, So clearly linking the war in Iraq to oil. And I think public sentiment was very anti-war at this stage. It had been pro-war in the beginning of the wars of Iraq and Afghanistan. It wasn't at this point. And it certainly wasn't supportive of a continuation of wars and discussions of Iran were, were high at this point as well, moving next to Iran. And so Obama captured that sentiment within that sentence. And it was also, um, you know, hailed as a very progressive, as in as in reflective back to the progressive era, uh, the, all, the, all of the sentiment of much of his um, um, candidacy. And he was described as a populist president, candidate. That was when the word populism was being accurately used as a reference to populism, which is a populism that is based on a popular will of the public to ensure that the rights of the broader public are more represented by government than the rights of companies, which was where the populist movement, the phrase the populist movement in the United States comes from. So I want to talk about the populist movement more in one second. But just to go back to uh, Obama's statement and the sentiment you were describing, 
in the opening chapter of your your book, you described the 2006 Gallup poll, um, which was uh, capturing public perceptions of U.S. industry. Um, and in that poll, which you described, um, you said that oil and gas consistently rates um, as one of the poorest performers in terms of having the lowest public perceptions. But in that poll in 2006, the oil and gas industry uh, received the lowest rating for any industry in the history of the poll. And so I'm wondering now, a bit over 10 years later, um, from Obama uttering that phrase, the tyranny of oil, and now we have an administration which you argued earlier in the interview might have the closest ties to the oil industry. How does the public perception of the oil industry fare right now? You know, I haven't seen an update in that Gallup poll, and now you're encouraging me to do so. I know I would I would be shocked if it's much higher than it was. They they have the industry has spent a lot of time on um, public affairs in in the wake of two thousand and eight. Uh, there, you'll see a lot more commercials on television now um, talking about uh, investments in public health and human health issues, alternative energy. By oil companies. By, the by oil, oil companies. companies. I guess not as many people watch television anymore, but I do, so I see the commercials. <laughs> um, and they've been they've been putting a lot of effort into PR. Um, I'm not sure how that's worked. What I think the public sentiment is, is the public, if you look at poll after poll, looking at uh, these questions, the public is very broadly aware of climate change. The public is very broadly aware of uh, being concerned about climate change and where that ranks on their list of concerns has get, gotten higher and higher and higher and higher. The public overwhelmingly supports um, the U.S. public alternative energy investments to fossil fuel investments. The latest statistic I saw was 75% of the public supports alternative energy investments. It's across the board um, to oil and gas investments. 54% of the public opposes fracking in the United States, and that number is closer to 80% if you look at Democrats versus Republicans. Um, people are eager to move beyond oil as a resource and to move into alternative forms of energy. And I think that is a reflection of a knowledge of impacts um, of the uh, on their environment, on their climate, on their pocketbook, on politics, um, and just wanting to to move past this industry. And I think the industry is is well aware of that. But this administration, I think, is a real reflection of um, in many, many, many realms, just an intense pendulum swing. So there had been lots of progress, what I would call progress, being made on issues of um, you know racial equality and justice, uh, human rights equality and justice. Um, environmental equality and justice, climate justice. You sort of name a list where there was a real progressive push. And this administration represents a huge pendulum swing back of people saying the people who believe all of those changes were super scary, super not in their interest, not something they wanted, and just pushing back the other direction. And that is what – so this – administration, while you've got all of those polls I was talking about with the broader public saying, you know, we want to move beyond oil, we don't like fracking, et cetera, et cetera, you have an administration that is filled with people like now the person who has been nominated to be the head of the Council on Environmental Quality, someone like Kathleen Hartnett White, who really represents an extreme version of, um, you know, her book entitled Fueling Freedom is a book about how the United States needs to become, uh, have an America first energy strategy that is about developing every single fossil fuel resource we can possibly find within the United States. She says straight out, there's no, never been any documented harm caused by fracking period ever. Uh, she believes that climate change is um, a hoax. It's a, it's, it's a religion. It's, un, it's not true. Um, and she, she represents that extreme swing back. Um, and that's what a lot of this administration is like. I do not think that that is reflective at all. Certainly, what I have seen does not does not support it of the of the broader mood of the American public or the views or sentiments of the broader American public. Rather, it's a very small minority that has pushed very hard to now be in government, <laughs> but that is not a reflection of the rest of the country. I want to talk about 
the populist movement that you've referenced now several times in which you discuss in your book, uh, The Tyranny of Oil. First, can you just start by giving us a brief description of what the populist movement was in U.S. history in the early 20th century? What prompted it and and what the outcome of it was, what it, what it, uh, what it succeeded in doing? Yeah, so the short version is um, coming out of the Civil War, there was enormous amount of um, protection, subsidies, support um, for industry within the United States to really help grow, see the see industry grow. But those protections essentially never stopped. So the companies grew and grew and grew and grew and grew and become became monopolies. They were called at the time trusts. It was very similar to a monopoly. And they were... Um, they utilized their size, uh, their influence to gain an enormous um, uh, stranglehold on government and control policy towards them. And um, they also were able to thrive in a system in which there were almost no laws restricting their activities uh, to protect workers or the environment or uh, public health, um, things like that. Um and certainly nothing to protect uh, the functioning of the of the democracy. And what happened was people started to organize across the country, workers for the right um, to a, st- a set number of hours for the workday or a set number of days for the work week, for the right to form unions, for the right to bargain collectively, um, for um, rights of minority, what were then described at the time as minority workers, so the work rights of people of color, in particular African-American workers at that time, the rights to have a limit on how companies could spend money to influence elections, on limits on how big companies could get, and there started to be mass organizing among just all across the country, farmers, workers, rail workers, seamstresses, um, you name it, people started organizing um, and protesting. This was an era of mass protest all across the country, all the time. Cities getting shut down, work being shut down, ports being shut down, and often violently repressed um, protest. And the results of this era, which um, which were really strongly embodied by the idea, ultimately the idea that companies just needed to be sort of have some sort of balance between the rights of the public, the rights of the environment, and the rights of companies and the rights of the government <laughs> needed to come into balance, which they weren't. Many people saw re- revolutionary change. What they got was progressive regulatory changes. And we saw all these laws that we really take for granted right now came into place in this time. The right to unionize, the eight-hour workday, the five-hour work week, um, campaign finance laws, and antitrust laws. And that was um, you know, basically the result of um, the po- populist progressive movement of the turn of the century. In The Tyranny of Oil, you commented that you saw some of the ingredients in place um, in 2006, the congressional elections in 2006 that uh, allowed the Democrats to sweep into power during the last two years of the Bush presidency, as well as in 2007 and 2008. So what were those ingredients that you saw in place over a decade ago now that you thought could lead to a similar uh, populist uh, movement? This is really Glo- the shift was global so at this time, too. So a period of mass organizing, particularly coming out of the anti-corporate globalization movement, which had gained uh, enormous influence domestically and globally, challenging the idea, you know, basically all the ideas I just said at a national level, challenging the idea of that at an international level, that there had been a, a system of international uh, rights put in place that protected multinational corporations to the detriment of workers' rights, the environment, people's rights, indigenous rights. Um, and a, a longer list of um, impacted parties had finally developed, which looked at deeper impacts of corporate activity. Now, in particular, I would say um, highlighting the impacts on indigenous people, and that was different and new. And mass organizing across the United States um, along very similar lines. Um, the climate change movement 
had begun to blossom and the anti-war movement, which was very strong and powerful at this time. And part of the anti-war movement was, again, a corporate analysis uh, of the role of corporations in the decision to go to war and the continuations of the war and the power within the uh, Bush administration. And a great international anti-war sentiment as well, and also putting together those pieces. And uh, a re-recognition of the rights of workers to unionize, um, the importance of uh, workers and their rights to a well-balanced economy, um, uh, a new belief in the in the in the needs uh, of unions and unionizing, and all of those pieces were just very similar, and they were um, quite active. <laughs> and I think a lot of it was really coming together between the anti-war movement and the links between war and oil, which were linking environmentalism, climate, the climate movement, the anti-war movement, a corporate analysis, a workers' analysis, sort of similar in a similar vein, all those pieces coming together. And then candidates that were reflecting those views and those concerns, ultimately leading to the election of Barack Obama as president of the United States. So I'd be curious then to track what's happened to those movements in the last 10 years. During the election of of Donald Trump, we saw two interesting movements play out, two of many. And and the two I'm thinking of are one, uh, the movement that was going on at Standing Rock in protest of the Dakota Access Pipeline, uh, which received huge national but also international attention and support. But there was also what was credited to be a populist movement that put uh, or was a big factor in putting Donald Trump in power. And that populist movement, uh, to my understanding, had uh, very minimal concern for issues uh, like climate change or the oil industry. So how do you see the uh, early bubbling up of the uh, populist movement in 2008 translating into into what was seen in 2016? I think that there has been throughout history a use by the right wing of the term populism as a misrepresentation of its views. Um, The Trump administration has absolutely not put in place any policies that represent an attempt to rein in, but rather only aggrandize corporate corporate power over the rights of people on the planet. Um, Many of the people who voted for Donald Trump, when you actually look at who the people are, are median to higher income people who many of their dominant concerns were about race, immigration, and a white nationalism, uh, which is not populism. Um, There was a lot of interest in in representing the movements that have supported right-wing candidates, including in Europe, as quote-unquote populist movements, when what they genuinely are are neo-national, in many cases, white supremacist anti-immigrant movements. And they should be called that. And I think it's an extreme mischaracterization of Donald Trump to call him a populist. If you look at his policies and what he has done as president, I think there are certainly people who support him, who supported his candidacy who espoused views that were also, um, you know, ran, ran along the lines of wanting to drain the swamp and that, that you know, the elimination of corrupt corporate influence over the government is certainly a populist sentiment. But I don't think that was the dominant thread. I'd like to discuss the uh, Dakota Access Pipeline, which you reported extensively on, as well as the protests that were going on um, at Standing Rock. So first, I'd just like to ask you, what is the current uh, status of the pipeline right now and and the protests around it? As of this spring, uh, the pipeline was approved. And I think as of early June, oil started flowing through it. Oil is still flowing through it. So uh, did the protest movement end as the story concluded? Oil is flowing through the pipeline. It was... um the Obama administration had called for a stop to construction of the pipeline while a, a full environmental impact assessment could be completed, which had not been done, which was supposed to be done according to the law. 
Um, the Trump administration instead decided to just move ahead, uh, allow the pipeline to follow its original path to allow the pipeline to be completed, which it is, and oil is flowing through it. The camp was disbanded um, both by choice and by force. Uh, many people decided it was time to end the protest camp. Others decided they wanted to stay, and they were uh, removed, forcibly removed by um, police and sheriff uh, and private security. There is, however, still a lawsuit that continues because a judge ruled that the uh, Army Corps of Engineers had not done an adequate environmental impact assessment and still needed to do so, but allowed the construction to continue while that was happening and allowed the oil to flow through the pipeline while that was happening. So the Trump administration is, in fact, still required to do an adequate environmental assessment and as well as an adequate assessment of the impacts on um, the um, Standing Rock Sioux that are directly impacted by the uh, by the path of the pipeline and to see if their rights were um, not adequately addressed and represented in the process of um, building the pipeline. So that's still underway and that legal fight is still underway um, and could ultimately result in the pipeline having to be shut down if the court uh, rules that the assessment was proves that the pipeline shouldn't be where it currently is and that the rights of the Native American tribes were not adequately represented in the process. What has now happened is that there are protests almost everywhere where there's a pipeline being built. So if you name me a pipeline under construction, I will name you a protest that's, that's happening there. Um, the protests against the pipelines preceded Standing Rock. Um, and really were born out of a similar model that was used against the Keystone uh, Keystone Pipeline. Um, and they did not end with Standing Rock. They rather flowered uh, out of it to many, many, many more points of infrastructure development, uh, oil infrastructure development. And I think the people who went through the, the process of being the organizers of Standing Rock um, definitely see that they – are continuing a process of organizing on behalf of the rights of Native American and indigenous populations um, and as well as uh, against um, the the development of uh, fossil fuel products. The oil industry also learned a lot from Standing Rock. And one of the things that the oil industry has done is start to um, – separate itself out from being vertically integrated into companies that are more segmented. So separating out the upstream from the midstream from the downstream of their of their um, corporate makeup so that there's more um, – there's less liability for the parent company for actions that happen to the other pieces of it. So we're seeing many major companies split themselves up into smaller parts we're also seeing many more companies just separate out and separate them. even the smaller or mid-sized companies like the pipeline companies also separate themselves out into many smaller parts. So it's harder to link one parent company to many different activities. And that's a legal structure. It's also a structure to try and hamper protest. Um, we have also seen the industry very aggressively go after the activities of protesters and activists, um, push for anti-protest laws to be passed and have been in several states, liability laws that hold larger NGOs accountable for the actions of activists on the ground. So if you're a large nonprofit organization with money that has helped facilitated activism on the ground, laws that would help that those NGOs be held liable for the actions of the activists. Um, so sort of the reverse of what the oil companies are doing, which is splitting themselves up, pass laws that make the activists more more vertically <laughs> aligned legally. Um, and uh, the oil industry has very publicly announced a database that it's formed of activists who participate in protests against it. And in and as as I revealed in my reporting from Standing Rock through a leaked docu doc series of documents that Grist, a media outlet, was provided, and they then brought me in to write the reporting on the story, Dakota Access its parent company, Energy Transfer Partners, hired a paramilitary 
uh, security company that had most experience working in Iraq and Afghanistan to provide the security for the Dakota Access Pipeline and to engage in activities that I would say are much more common for fighting off a foreign military insurgency than a group of Native American protesters and allies um, in North Dakota. And their activities were exposed through the um, my expose on Tiger Swan, which is the name of the company, and The Intercept, which got many more documents than I did. What that exposed was a new level of also pushback by the companies against activists that I have seen very often internationally. So around the world, it's very, very common for the oil industry to utilize local military to uh, push back against domestic resistance to their operations. I had not seen that before in the United States. With with Dakota Access, the National Guard, um, sheriffs and police, SWAT teams from all across the country, and armed private security were utilized against the protesters. Can you talk a little bit about from that investigation you mentioned uh, for GRIST, the the reporting you did, some of the tactics that were used by Tiger Swan um, that were used to disrupt the protesters in the internal documents that you mentioned, they refer to the protesters as jihadists and as an ideologically driven insurgency with a strong religious component. Again, those are documents both obtained uh, by GRIS, but also uh, the intercept. by The Intercept. Thank you. Uh, so can you discuss a few of the tactics that, that they... Um, we're using that may be unprecedented, as you were saying, for protests um, on U.S. ground. I think what was unprecedented was the um, correlation between or work, the, the coordination, excuse me, between the private security company, the fact that it was a paramilitary private security company and the police and the type of coordination between between the private security and the police and sheriffs allowed essentially the private security company to perform actions that if they were being performed by the police would be illegal. But because they were being performed by the private security company, potentially in collaboration, so in if, if the private security company had actually been working for the police directly, their activities would have been illegal. But because they were working for energy transfer partners, but coordinating with the police, it's not illegal. And the reason why it's not illegal is because we have a great series of laws that are intended to limit the activities of police to inhinge upon our rights as individuals. We almost have no laws whatsoever for private security companies. So we think of private security companies as the mall cop who has, you know, maybe a can of pepper spray on that person's belt. And that's the extent of their activities. These are guys who are armed with semi-automatic weapons, trained as um, the, the most skilled uh, within, our, within our military, trained to provide intense wartime uh, operations and security in war zones, acting as, quote unquote, private security. What The Intercept found out, though, by the way, was that they weren't even licensed to be private security, com- to be a private security company in North Dakota. And in fact, they were operating without a license to do so. Um, The things that they did that we know that they did uh, were that they um, infiltrated the social networks of the activists, um, including going into private Facebook groups, and that they specifically said in their documents that that was intended to find information that could later be used against the activists. They infiltrated and monitored the activities of activists in the camps, but also through as far as you can imagine, of groups that were even distantly related to the protests. So there was uh, reports of surveillance and activities that they had done on church groups in Chicago because the church groups in Chicago had helped uh, you know, host a speaker from the water protectors. And so they were monitoring and infiltrating the church group in Chicago. Um, they were also... Uh, infiltrating activities in the camp, they intentionally within their documents said that one of the things they were trying to do is create divisions within the camp and to turn essentially the the protesters against one another. Um, they were spreading, sending information, misinformation to the company and to the police to make the water protectors sound like they were much more um, militant and potentially violent and dangerous than in fact they were. 
Um, I recounted a story within my article of a young woman who I ultimately found by tracing her back from the leaked Tiger Swan document to what was actually happening in the camp that day. And then I found that a young woman had performed a um, self-defense class among a group of women in the camp. It hadn't been publicly advertised. You would have had to have been there to know that it was happening. And it was a self-defense class. That then got reported within the Tiger Swan document as um, a hand-to-hand combat training by a militant group at the camp, which is an utter misrepresentation to make it sound like much more dangerous activity was being ha- was happening at the camp so that would then justify more aggressive activity by the police and the private security, which did happen. So we saw many instances of very, very aggressive, and there's lawsuits against these activities that they were not legal um, use of water cannons in freezing weather, um, use of um, – there were you know snipers situated uh, within the military Humvees that were located all around the camp. There were um, physical encounters that, with the use of tasers and the use of batons and fists, et cetera, et cetera. And um, part of what is being investigated – with the release of these documents was was the misinformation that was, was that was intentionally being provided by Tiger Swan leading to an illegal and over aggressive physical and legal by arresting people and keeping them in jail response by the by the police and by the state um and that's just yeah the the, the tip of the iceberg of what those uh, reports revealed you mentioned how prevalent um oil pipeline protests um, are becoming, especially since um, the protests at Standing Rock. The messaging uh, among the activist community at Standing Rock um, was largely about protecting water and protecting land. Uh, Famously, many of the protesters referred to themselves as water protectors. And these protests were not about climate change and they were not about keep it in the ground. Um, which is a uh, much more common refrain among a different sector of the environmental community. So what lessons in terms of messaging um, are being drawn from that protest by other communities uh, in terms of the emphasis on protecting land and water versus emphasizing the link of oil and impact on climate change? I think you need to talk to the people who are doing that messaging. But um, I would disagree that what I experienced at the camp was people who saw and were saying and telling me in interviews that protecting the water and protecting the land was part of uh, keeping fossil fuels on the ground was a core part of that. There were differences within the camp and particularly within the legal strategy. The legal strategy was not keep it in the ground. The legal strategy was... Um, this pipeline isn't supposed to be here. This pipeline was supposed to be further up, closer to the city. And the white people in the city said, we don't want the pipeline passing near our water. So they moved it down without an, appro- without an appropriate environmental impact statement, without an appropriate account of the rights of the tribes, um, down to be in the Standing Rock Sioux territory or just outside of it. Um, and so the legal strategy was about the law. Um, there were people within the camp who the most important thing for them was um, a, a, a sense of spirituality and prayer and the need for decisions to be guided by prayer. There were people in the camp who the most important thing for them was protection of uh, the rights and sovereignty of indigenous peoples. Uh, there were people in the camp who had different views. The overall agreed upon messaging or theme or the thing that united them all was protecting water, being water protectors. That united everybody there. And how you how uh, how people interpreted that varied. Most of the people I talked to, um, protecting water is part and parcel to keeping fossil fuels in the ground. And you see many of the leaders of Standing Rock, um, people like Candy Mossett, um, and and others with the Indigenous Environmental Network, Dallas Goldtooth, uh, Joy Braun, and others, uh, are part key members of also organizing this for f- keeping fossil fuels in the ground and climate act- climate activists. 
I believe what people in Standing Rock did not want to see happen, however, was a white NGO movement that focused on climate change to the rejection of all of those other concerns that I named dominate what was happening there in any way from what was actually happening there to quote unquote messaging. I'm curious how you now view the uh, longevity and profitability of the oil industry when you wrote The Tyranny of Oil. Um, Exxon was, I believe, the most profitable corporation uh, ever. In, in ever. Um, however, uh, one, when you were reporting on Rex Tillerson leading up to his confirmation, uh, you were describing the decreasing profitability of Exxon under um, under his management. I think in 2016, Exxon had the lowest annual profits that it had in uh, 30 years. There was a decline between 2015 and 2014 and the year before that. Is this representative of a decline uh, in the oil industry? And, and, and how uh, much longer do you see it uh, having the power that it had? One of the things that's happened during the Trump administration is Trump his very first foreign policy, his very first foreign trip, his very first foreign trip in office was to Saudi Arabia. The ties of trying to link more securely U.S. oil interests to re-solidifying re that relationship with the Saudis has been key within the Trump administration. And I am 100% certain that Rex Tillerson has a good deal to do with that. And trying to tame the oil market and control production has happened over the last seven months, such that the price of oil is now higher than it's been in, I believe, almost a year. The price of oil is going back up. It's the primary determinant on the profitability of oil companies is the price of oil. The oil companies were making more money than any companies had ever made in the history of the world when the price of oil was $100, $150 a barrel. When it fell down to 50 and then stayed there, that dramatically, dramatically reduced their profitability. There's been oversupply of oil, and the industry is doing everything it can to rein that in, which runs counter to the activities of the Trump administration domestically servicing those domestic companies that want to see the quote-unquote energy first agenda that I described earlier, America first energy agenda, which is to exploit every source of resource we have. So trying to tame those interests has been something that the Trump administration has done, trying to do. I believe that that is happening. So one of the things is to separate out the rhetoric from the reality Having the Trump administration declare that it intends to produce all of America's oil, whether or not it does, sends a message to consumers and producers of oil everywhere in the world that this game is not over anytime soon. Don't – this oil game. You don't need to change your consumption patterns. And by consumers, I mean big consumers like governments who buy lots and lots of oil because they don't have it themselves. Um, industries that buy lots and lots and lots of oil. Massive consumers of oil. It sends a message that says you, you can continue to depend on this product because the U.S. isn't getting off it anytime soon. And therefore, the the, therefore, we're, therefore we're not going to be pushing the rest of the world to do it either. And it sends a message to the world that the oil era is not – yet over. Also, having the Trump administration say, we are going to exploit every uh, source of oil, part of what that manifests itself into immediately is deregulation, which just means making all of that oil accessible, which is something that every company wants, whether you're Exxon, Chevron, Gazprom, or Continental Oil. And they want to have it, they want to own it, and then they want to decide when they will exploit it. So, Right now, what we've got is there is a successful taming of the industry in that sense happening even in the United States, even under the Trump administration, meaning just because they have the ability to exploit more resources with less regulations, with less restrictions, with, le with less oversight, doesn't mean they're immediately going to pop the cork. So what has happened is a taming of global supply which has brought the industry more in line with supply and demand, which has risen 
the price of oil, which has automatically increased profitability of the oil industry from last year to this year, increases about 50% in profits, which is a lot. So I think the oil industry is not going to go quietly, but they're not the only people who get to decide, right? So there is a countercurrent that is running across the country, around the world, which is that we want to sign on to things like the Paris Climate Accord, and we want to end the era of fossil fuels. That's one trend, and that could be dominant. The oil industry is not going to go quietly into the night. So they're going to do what they can to get their profits back up. They're going to do what they can to get rid of all the little pesky little companies that are sort of messing up their schemes. And they are going to do whatever they can to get rid of regulations which limit where they're allowed to operate. And they're going to try and regain uh, control of the product and control it for as long as we continue to use it. Antonio Juhas, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Habitations is a production of Sage Magazine at the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies with production help from the Yale Broadcast and Media Center. To find out more about Antonia Juhas's work and read her articles, you can see her website at antoniajuhas.net. Antonia's visit to Yale was made possible with help from a Pointer Fellowship in Journalism, as well as a grant from the Yale School of Forestry Class of 1980 Fund. You can listen to more of our podcasts or subscribe to Habitations in Apple Podcasts, on SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And thank you for listening.